Welcome back to Labor Law Radio with your host, Michael Tracy. That's me, attorney at law. The subject of this uh, particular program, this show for this week, is uh, unpaid overtime. Uh, earlier we had uh, discussed you know, why there's been an increase in the number of uh, unpaid overtime claims. We talked briefly about some of the exemptions that covered the uh, executive. Uh, this segment we're going to cover the uh, administrative and executive exemption and get to some of your questions. If you'd like to uh, submit a question, you can go to uh, two ways, uh, via the internet at www.laborlawradio.com, or uh, if you prefer to call us, you can call us at 888-678-7229. That's 888-678-7229. Six seven eight seven two two nine. That's eight eight eight, Mister Tracy. Uh, but before we get started with uh, back into our regular segment on uh, unpaid overtime, what I want to do is go over some uh, issues of of news and uh, you know legal news and the uh, uh, area of unpaid overtime and uh, other employment issues, and have a couple a uh, couple recent uh, California uh, cases that uh, have developed or federal cases. Any interesting things that have come up in the news. So uh, each week we're going to cover these uh, these various developments because they do relate to various things of labor law. Hopefully the subject that we're uh, we're talking about some of these do and some of these don't. In a recent case, uh, prevailing wage case, prevailing wage is similar to minimum wage except it applies to uh, government construction projects. Uh, on these projects, uh, you have to pay the prevailing wage, which is generally the uh, uh, the union scale rate for that type of work. Is limited to uh, certain types of uh, government-funded projects, uh, but provides a minimum wage for people uh, working on those that is well above what the uh, you know the state minimum wage is. In any case, um, some undocumented workers had um, uh, uh, were prosecuting a claim for uh, the employer was not paying them prevailing wage largely because they were undocumented and they didn't think they have to. The undocumented workers uh, sued the employer in state court, and the trial court dismissed. The case, they said they could not sue because they were barred uh, from suing for back wages because they were undocumented, and they cited the uh, uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act as barring them from pursuing their lawsuit. Fortunately, the uh, employees appealed that, and uh, the California Court of Appeals recently overturned the trial court and said basically that employees, uh, even if they were undocumented, uh, could pursue claims for wages. Uh, which does help clarify some of the issues in this. And I, I don't want to get too much on a tangent here because that's not the subject of today's conversation. But there are a, a variety of issues that uh, relate to whether undocumented workers can or cannot pursue claims. And, you know, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, as well as certain uh, Supreme Court decisions, limit uh, the wage claims that... Uh, or the types of claims that undocumented workers uh, can pursue. In particular, uh, this particular court held that if the undocumented workers had submitted false work authorization documents, certain types of wage claims would have been disallowed. Uh, however, in this case, the, the court found out that there was no evidence that they had provided uh, false uh, documents. And in addition to that, they were following, you know, the general rule for back wages in California. You know, California legislator has specifically said that your immigration status is irrelevant to whether you're entitled to be paid your back wages or not. And the court decided to uh, to follow that particular uh, law in in this case. But it is a developing uh, developing area of law, and as as new things uh, come out in that uh, in that regard, we'll cover them on this show. But that one is uh, certainly a positive. 
a result for those employees. And I think generally, you know, what we would expect in a case like that, if, if you're not going to allow undocumented workers to sue for back wages, that's going to depress their wages even more and give employers uh, even more of an incentive to uh, hire these undocumented workers and pay them a uh, sub-minimum wage, sub-prevailing wage, because, you know, you can't be sued for it. So, you know, it would be a, as a public policy uh, reason, it would be ridiculous to uh, essentially throw out a whole sector of the economy and say you're outside the scope of our laws and you don't need to follow them uh, because you're already breaking our laws. You don't need to follow the rest of them. That would, uh, uh, you know, the employers are the ones violating the laws there. Uh, the employers are the ones that, uh, that are already violating the laws. So it's, it's ridiculous to say, well, the employers are already violating these laws. So now you don't need to follow any of our wage laws or anything like that. And it'll be a recurring theme on here is illegal employers. Uh, and what they uh, and the problems that come up with that. So very very interesting case on that one. We'll have uh, some show notes on it on the website. Uh, the, the other recent one that came up in, in January, I talked about it in the first half of the show, is this $33 million settlement with the Department of Labor and Walmart. This was largely criticized at the time because it was generally seen as the uh, Department of Labor selling out uh, to Walmart. It was, I mean, $33 million for this type of case. I mean, if it was prosecuted by a plaintiff's attorney, they would be pretty embarrassed if they only got $33 million out of it. But in any case, we won't we won't get into all those issues. I mean, the main thing I want to focus on there is exactly what that particular uh, overtime settlement covered, because all of the employees there were paid overtime. They just weren't being paid overtime properly. And Walmart claimed it was some nuance of the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which I'll sometimes refer to as FLSA. It's uh, the acronym is FLSA. Um, exactly how you pronounce it. FLSA doesn't come out so where. So generally, uh, attorneys call it FLSA. Uh, so FLSA is the federal uh, overtime law, applies to all uh, 50 states and, and some of the territories. Uh, California law largely mirrors that with, uh, with certain uh, different uh, nuances, depending on, on the law. And we'll, we'll cover that as we go along. But in the, uh, in the $33 million that, uh, that Walmart had to, uh, to pay up, basically, uh, there was a couple different things that they paid. First of all, they were paying their employees overtime after 45 hours in a week. Apparently, they didn't read uh, the law that said 40 hours a week. They decided to pay it after 45. Not exactly sure why that happened, but for whatever reason, they, they thought that that was legal, but uh, but it was not. That was a pretty clear-cut uh, violation. In fact, all of these are clear-cut, but they're not as they're not as well-known. The next one was that they were actually paying their employees more money for certain types of work. I mean, if you worked in a in an undesirable area, an undesirable district, they'd pay you some type of, uh, or, you know, a more expensive, uh, you know, if, if they transferred you to a more expensive store, they, they would pay you some type of premium for working in these uh, certain geographic locations. But the law for overtime requires that all wages be used in computing what your overtime rate of pay is. They can't arbitrarily say, well, you're, you make seven fifty an hour and your overtime is one and a half times that, but we're going to give you a $500 a week bonus that's not going to be included in your overtime rate. That would essentially be defeating the uh, defeating the overtime rate. This is a little bit technical, and I, I've got some some great illustrations up on the website. If you go to Labor Law Radio, it'll link over to uh, the Got Overtime website uh, where you can see some of these uh, computations for the regular rate of pay. It doesn't really the radio doesn't lend itself well to explaining these computations because they are a little bit detailed. So I'm I'm going to gloss over them here. If you're really interested in what went wrong with Walmart's computation, how it should have been computed, uh, please go to the website. But essentially, they were paying this bonus pay. And it wasn't included in their regular rate of pay, and that you know triggered the uh, uh, the overtime violation. Uh, the other thing that they were doing was basically blending it all together. I, I guess they were on a two-week pay period, a bi-weekly pay cycle, 
And they sort of took that as to mean if you work more than 80 hours in the week rather than 40 hours. So if you work 50 hours in one week and 30 hours in the next week, they just blend it all out and say, well, it averaged out to 40 hours a week. Close enough. That's not the law. That is the law. Certain industries like the healthcare industry can implement 80-hour, two-week periods, but there's additional restrictions on that. It gets, a, it gets a little bit technical. But it's not applicable to Walmart. It's not applicable to the vast majority of people out there. There's no such thing as a blended uh, average of... Of, of 40 hours a week. It's 40 hours a week. If you go over it, you get overtime. If you go under it, then, oh well, that's, uh, they don't owe you any overtime, but they still owe you the overtime for the previous week. So in any case, uh, a variety of technical violations that went in there uh, in terms of how they were computing overtime, blending the uh, the rates, and we see these in a lot of cases. I mean, anytime uh, people pay bonuses or incentive pay, a slew of uh, wage violations in terms of piece rate, rate employees, people who are paid, you know, five dollars a unit for doing something. See a lot of it in the car wash; they're paid so much, you know, per car or something like that. You're still entitled to overtime, right? Remember the general rule: everybody in California is entitled to overtime unless they meet one of the uh, the strict ex- exemptions. Uh, there's no exemption for uh, Walmart employees uh, that are paid an extra bonus or that are paid on a you know, geographic incentive bonus or how to get paid every two weeks and average that out. None of that is, uh, those are not exemptions. They're, they're not valid. And so 33 million bucks from Walmart. Uh, the next one, you know, I, I'll cover this a little bit more when we get back into the administrative exemption. I was supposed to get to the administrative exemption the first half, but, uh, I went a little long as most attorneys do when they, when they talk. But a, a federal judge, uh, in Pennsylvania issued an order basically throwing out a Department of Labor opinion letter. This is U.S. Department of Labor. The California Division of Labor Standards Enforcement issues similar opinion letters. They have not issued an opinion letter such as this one. But essentially what happened was this relates to loan officers. The loan officers uh, were suing a mortgage uh, brokerage for for unpaid overtime, another one of these big, uh, big cases. In this case, I think it was a fidelity mortgage. And what happened was the Mortgage Bankers Association, the MBA, wrote a letter to the Department of Labor and said, we have a hypothetical here about these employees, and you answer this hypothetical and tell us whether they would be exempt. And the Department of Labor looked at it, and they read the hypothetical, and said, well, based on the hypothetical facts that you put in this this letter that you sent, these guys would be exempt from overtime. Of course, it wasn't a real hypothetical. Uh, They were basically trying to use it in a lawsuit that uh, Fidelity Mortgage was in, and so they took it back to the judge, and they said, aha, We've got this letter from the Department of Labor saying these guys are exempt from overtime. Fortunately, the judge didn't fall for the ruse. That's why I like federal court judges. Uh, generally, they, they are very in tune to the details and nuances of the law. I, I don't always see that in state courts. So federal court judges generally been, you know, you see a lot more of the technical decisions coming out of federal court. Uh, we'll get into that sort of as we, as we discuss things throughout the show. Uh, you know, in, in coming weeks about the differences between federal and state court. But uh, in this particular case, federal uh, judge didn't fall for it. He said that was a ruse. First of all, the way that thing was written by the MBA, the Mortgage, Bro- Mortgage Brokers Association, was so stilted. I mean, they basically concocted these job duties that were clearly exempt. I mean, they had these loan officers advising on the best financial products, you know, basically somebody coming to them and saying, we need, uh, you know, to structure the debt for our company and you go raise the money for us and uh, some type of investment banker or something, you know, high-powered financial, you know, Wall Street type of uh, person, not, you know, an entry salesperson like a stockbroker or loan officer who's really just selling a loan. You know, they you've gotten the phone call where they want to refinance your house 
house for a one percent and you know forty years fixed and you know some balloon payment that's going to have the thing foreclose on you in five years that they don't really highlight for you, but uh, that's what they're doing. They're they're just uh, salespeople trying to sell a product just like everybody else, and. There are certain rules uh, for the uh, exemptions of, of salespeople, but mortgage brokers uh, do not fall into that exemption because it's not a retail product. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit later with the exemptions. But in any case, I mean, this was a very interesting uh, development because it was good to see the court sort of throw out this elaborate rouge by the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association and uh, you know apply the law that uh, that is supposed to be there. I I have to say, and I, I personally like that because. Nearly every single loan officer case I deal with, the opposing counsel mails me a copy of this uh, this Rouge letter, and uh, you know says, "Oh, look, here's this uh, here's this Rouge that uh, that we hope you know fooled the uh, Department of Labor into into agreeing to." So clearly, your your client is exempt and not entitled to overtime. But the job duties were just so so ridiculously uh, disparate from what was going on in that case and what goes on in the vast majority of cases. So personally, I really like that case. Uh, doesn't mean a lot to to people who aren't mortgage brokers, but uh, but I like it. The next case doesn't have anything to do with uh, with unpaid overtime, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was rather interesting, rather humorous. The good thing about labor and employment law is you get a lot of funny stuff. Some of the stuff we can't put on the radio, or I have to really censor it, especially when it comes into the sexual harassment uh, realm. But uh, in this case, I I, I found it was uh, somewhat amusing. Basically female employee was terminated for wearing a, a tongue stud. And the question is, is was that essentially sexual harassment? There was a whole bunch of things. I mean, this was in, in the context of, uh, uh, you know, she was a sheriff and, you know, thank God for, you know, the sheriffs and corrections departments and in general government uh, uh, prison facilities and, and law enforcement uh, agencies because they provide a wealth of sexual discrimination lawsuits with uh, very interesting and uh, colorful fact patterns, this one uh, on, on the tamer side. But essentially, she was initially reprimanded for wearing a tongue stud um, because it violated their non-discriminatory uniform policy, which said no visible uh, body piercings. I mean, if you have a, a non-discriminatory uh, uniform policy, that would be legal. So what she did was change the stud ring from a, a, a silver one. She got a, a an acrylic see-through stud ring, and she thought that that would be uh, sufficient. And that lasted for a couple months until uh, her new supervisor saw the uh, saw the clear stud ring and said, "Well, you can't wear that either." And essentially, she had been written up before, and she had made some misstatements about it. And it gets a little bit more complicated, uh, but to simplify it down. There is solid precedence that you you can be fired for uh, wearing a stud ring, that it is not a, a discriminatory uh, policy. Uh, there was some discriminatory stuff that went on in that case in terms of, uh, you know, they had posted on a, on a job board that a, a job was for, for males only, and that particular part of the case will go forward. But unfortunately for all the uh, stud ring wearers out there, uh, not, a good, uh, not a good case. So if they tell you not to wear your stud, stud ring on the job, um, you probably need to comply with it. And, uh, don't have a good case for uh, sexual discrimination. Anyway, that's the news that we've got uh, that we've got for this week. Let's get back into uh, unpaid overtime cases because we've still got to cover the uh, administrative exemption and the professional exemption. I'm going to cover those briefly and then get into some of our questions because they kind of highlight what uh, the issues are in those particular exemptions as well. Administrative exemption is by far the most complicated. Defense attorneys love it. 
uh, anytime you pursue a, a an unpaid overtime case, you can you can bet they're going to raise the administrative exemption at some point. Uh, I've seen it raised in cases that are completely inapplicable, but it it always comes up. You know that was essentially the crux of that uh, the mortgage broker uh, overtime case was that they were saying that the Department of Labor said that they were exempt under the administrative exemption. What it applies to is anybody who is involved with the white collar aspects of servicing a business. Uh, traditional examples of this are accountants, high-level human resources people, high-level planners for the company, uh, certainly the CFO, the you know the CEO will probably be exempt as executive, but also as, as administrative. You can distinguish it by, you know, essentially the, every company is broken down in, into two areas, production and administrative. You know, production is what produces the end goods and services of the company. So in a lot of cases, it's pretty easy. General Motors produces cars. Uh, Microsoft produces software. John Deere produces lawnmowers. And if you're making these lawnmowers or software or uh, cars, then you're in a production function and you're not going to be an exempt as an administrator. But anything else that relates to servicing the business, so if you're involved in HR and you make up uh, employee benefits policies, or you you know you work on their four hundred one k plan, or you uh, help screen applicants. Screen applicants, you help uh, review the criteria of applicants and, and and help hiring and firing various people for the company. You wouldn't meet the executive exemption if all you did was hire and fire, because you don't meet all the other requirements of the executive exemption. But that is an administrative function, and if you spend more than fifty percent of your time on it, you're going to be exempt, even if you're not, even if those people don't report to your department, and even if you don't meet the other requirements of the uh, the executive exemption. So this one frequently applies to people who are in charge of functional departments but don't meet the administrative exemptions. For instance, if you're in charge of the labor relations department and you only have one employee that reports to you, um, you're still going to be exempt, not as an executive, not as a supervisor, because you don't supervise two people, and even if you did, like you said, you're not spending 50% of your time on those exempt functions. You are going to be exempt as an administrator because labor relations, you know, dealing with unions, dealing with employees, dealing with uh, you know various labor issues, is an administrative function. The company doesn't exist to produce labor contracts. Or you know, if you work uh, as as a high level purchaser for the company, and and you you know, let's say you negotiate contracts with vendors and suppliers and things like that, that's not what the company exists to provide. It exists to make cars or software, or, you know, lawnmowers, whatever it is, and and those other aspects of it are are administrative. So a lot of cases, it's it's a pretty clear cut. In other ones, it's not. Not clear cut cases, especially come up in the technology sector for uh, IT professionals, computer network database administrators. Some of those are going to be uh, exempt as administrators, and some of those are not going to be exempt as administrators. So very, uh, you know, you know, very difficult questions come up uh, in the administrative exemption, and I've got a lot of information. Uh, about it on my website. If, if you think you might be qualified or you want more information about that, I'd, I'd strongly recommend that you go there because I can't possibly. Uh, administrative exemption, you know, attorneys can talk you know, ad nauseum about that. And attorneys can talk ad nauseum about just about anything, but especially the administrative exemption for a wage and hour employee. A big, another big exemption is the professional exemption. Uh, this covers, I mean, the professional exemption is usually very, very clear cut. I mean, doctors, lawyers, CPAs, you know, certified public accountants, are, they're exempt as professionals. CPAs are probably going to be exempt as administrators anyway. But 
Um, anybody who's licensed by the state of California working as a lawyer, doctor, engineer, accountant uh, is going to be an exempt as a professional. Uh, if you're in a highly intellectual field, you know, you're working out at uh, JPL as a rocket scientist or something like that, uh, you, then you have an advanced degree uh, and your work is uh, intellectual and varied, uh, you're going to be exempt as a professional. If you're working as a writer or an artist, you could be exempt. But there's a very fine line between you know technical work and artistic work. If you're a technical writer, you're probably not exempt. And if you're like more of an industrial artist or you know sort of a routine artist, you're you're going to be non-exempt. Uh, a good line has been drawn in terms of cartoonist. Cartoonist who like Dilbert who can make up their own stuff and, and are creative and they just go off and, and make their own cartoons. They are exempt as uh, professionals because they exercise discretion and independent judgment and, and have in, you know intellectual creativity that goes into their work. But animators for cartoons who are told, you know, you take Mickey Mouse and you make him run across the screen and, and fall into the, the water and, you know, have something funny happen to him. That, uh, even though it is somewhat artistic, you're not given anything more than instructions on what to do. And you're not using your, your intellectual creativity to, to draw that particular scene. You're simply doing what somebody else told you to do. So a lot of animators are entitled to uh, to overtime because they don't have the creativity the general rule for artists in this regard is if you're given anything more than the subject matter of the work that you're supposed to be doing, you're non-exempt. Anyway, we're running uh, very short on time, so I want to get to some of the questions that we have. Okay, our first question was submitted by uh, via email. I'm an on-site resident manager. I have to be on-site six days a week and for emergencies. I handle all maintenance requests and uh, ensure that deposits are deposited in the bank. I'm required to make sure all vacant units are ready to rent, including vacuuming, wiping down counters, and cleaning. I am paid a salary of $900 a month. Am I entitled to overtime? This is a very good uh, typical question. We get a lot of uh, resident manager cases in this particular case, you're entitled to overtime for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, the $900 a month salary is well below the threshold for salary basis in California. In California, you're required to make at least $600 per week as a base salary in order to be exempt under one of the uh, the big three exemptions, the executive, professional, or administrative. So first of all, your salary of $900 a month uh, does not qualify. Now, you're probably thinking, well, there's a free apartment in there, and that might be worth you know, who knows how much, uh, 900 a month, $1,500 a month, depending on where, where she's living, um, would that put her over the threshold? The answer is, is it's irrelevant. Uh, any non-monetary compensation that you get cannot be included in your salary for computing the overtime threshold. Uh, there are certain credits that can be used against minimum wage. This person is also probably subject to a minimum wage violation because in general, an apartment like this can be you know somewhere between you know, four and $600 a month as a credit against minimum wage, but it cannot be credited uh, for use in computing the, uh, the overtime threshold. So first of all, you're below the overtime threshold, but we'll assume for the sake of argument that you did make uh, significantly more as a base salary. It wouldn't make any difference. Even if they paid you $5,000 a month to do these job duties, 
uh, even though your job title is manager, you're not supervising uh, two or more employees, and you're certainly not spending 50% of your time on uh, executive duties. You can't hire and fire, so you're not exempt as an executive. You're doing the actual production function of this particular office, which is renting apartments. That's what this particular uh, employer exists to produce, is uh, to produce apartments for people to rent. That's a, a, a Production function, not an administrative fun- function. You're uh, clearly not a professional. This isn't a license. doesn't require artistic creativity. doesn't meet any of the myriad of the other uh, exemptions out there. You're not in a, uh, you know, an outside sales or, or something like that. So you would be entitled to overtime, and you know that would be based on... Uh, you know The interesting thing with this, when you compute what your regular rate of pay is for overtime... At that point, you do include the value of that apartment in determining what your regular rate of pay is. So by that, what I mean is you're going to take your $900 a month, and we'll say for the sake of argument that the apartment is worth $1,000 a month. So what you would do to determine what your overtime rate of pay would be would be to take your $1,000 a month that you get uh, for the apartment, add $900 a month to that, divide that by 40 hours per week, and that would be uh, your regular rate of pay. That's probably even below minimum wage, depending on the number of hours that you work. So um, that would be uh, that would be an issue as well. So in any case, you are entitled to overtime. You probably have some minimum wage violations there. That is a, uh, a good wage in our case. So next question. Someone at my company told me that if they want to work, uh, if the employer wants you to work overtime on the weekend, they need to tell you by Wednesday. Can you give me the law that requires this? No, I cannot because there is no law that requires this. There is nothing that requires an employer to give you notice of overtime. The laws for overtime relate to being paid for it and what that regular rate is and who's entitled to overtime, but the employer is allowed to control their business as they see fit, and that means uh, it could mean overtime on no notice. Uh, The employer can even terminate you, fire you, or conduct other disciplinary action against you for refusing to work overtime on no notice. And this really gets into you know, why people end up suing their employer for these things. I mean, because, you know, the employer can tell you, you know, five minutes before your three-day weekend that you need to stay late and finish some particular project, and that can, you know, adversely affect your uh, plans for the weekends. That's perfectly legal. You can't sue for that. But frequently people go back and then sue for one of these other technical violations. Another common question I get, even though this particular uh, listener didn't get to it, is can I be... Uh, required to work overtime, or is there some limit to the amount of overtime that I can be required to work? And in general, the answer to that is there is no limit to the overtime that you can be required to work. And a couple of the wage orders in California categorizes each industry. There's 17 different wage orders that cover various different industries, and only two or three of them have limits on the amount of overtime that can be worked. And the most prevalent one uh, is a 72-hour limit for uh, wage order number four, which covers you know professional and clerical operations, which is a good number of employees in California. But it is capped at 72, and the vast majority of the overtime, the compulsory overtime that's worked, is well less than 72 hours. So even if you meet, even if you fall under wage order number four, you're still, you know, this employer can still require that you work all the overtime up to uh, up to 72 hours in a week. So. Uh, in general, the uh, employer can require with no notice, and they can terminate you if you refuse to work it. But they, they do have to pay you properly for overtime if you do work it. And that's sort of been the theme of this show. So hopefully it's been informative to you. 
Of course, keep in mind that nothing on the show is, is legal advice. You should consult uh, an attorney spe- you know, specific to uh, your particular problem. You can contact me at www.laborlawradio.com and uh, hope to see you next time on the show. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement of the law office of Michael Tracy. Not meant to be legal advice. It's not necessary to establish a very client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are relevant. We're not guaranteed any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California.